And our, our uh, reading this evening is from the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read together from verse 1. Matthew 5, from verse 1. It's page 968 in your pure Bible. Matthew 5, verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. Amen. Stand to sing our next hymn, My Hope is Built on... We looked uh, very recently at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ascension, we said, is amongst other things, the vindication of God... uh, upon the Lord Jesus. It is His exaltation, His coronation, and His vindication. The world may have rejected Jesus, but in the ascension we see that God accepts and embraces Jesus. God looks at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and honors Him by raising Him not only from death to life, but by raising Him to take His place at the Father's right hand, to take His place of most honor. And we looked at Philippians chapter 2. Paul reminds the Philippians that they are to live in humility and in love, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he tells them why they are to live in this fashion, because this is the way of Jesus. Jesus lived a life of love. Here is love vast as the ocean. 
Your attitude, says Paul, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because God the Father vindicated this way of living, therefore, says Paul, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And since we looked at that, passage and at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I have been chewing over the question, well, if God the Father honors the life of Christ, this life of love, this life of humility, then where are we to look to grasp hold of what it means to live like Jesus? And we have, of course, the example that Paul gives to us that we've just read together from Philippians chapter 2. We have Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit that Bill has brought to our attention in recent days. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If our lives are marked by these characteristics, then our lives will look a lot like the life of Christ. But it seems to me there is one other obvious summary to which we ought to turn, and that is to the Beatitudes. It is in the Beatitudes that we find Jesus' own teaching on this topic. This is how he wants his followers to live their lives. There is, uh, if you have your Bible open and you're reading from the NIV, there's a lot of disagreement as to exactly how many Beatitudes there are whether there's eight or nine, how do we look at the Pew Bible? And the way it's formatted, it looks like there are eight Beatitudes in the kind of section by itself. Uh, but many people also think that just under that section, there is a blessed are you, that that should be included. I'm going to say there are nine because um, I have three more evening service sermons before summer, and I can divide nine by three, so uh, we're going to look at three every Sunday evening from now till the summer. Blessed are the... I want you to close your eyes for a moment. We're not going to do anything really weird, so don't worry. Close your eyes for a moment, and I want you to picture in your mind someone that you love very deeply, very dearly. Picture their face, maybe a child or a parent or a sibling or a friend. And in a word, in one word, what would you want for that person that you love? When you have your word, you can open your eyes again. I'm not going to ask for any feedback, so, so don't worry. I, I would 
I hazard a guess that many of us, in fact, I would hazard a guess that most of us had the same word in our minds. Happiness, surely, is what we want for those who we love. Happiness. Not happiness that is shallow, but happiness that is deep. And not happiness that is fleeting, but happiness that is lasting. Because we love them, we want them to be happy. That kind of happiness is what we want for those whom we love, and that kind of happiness is what we want for ourselves. Not a shallow happiness, not a fickle happiness, but a happiness with joy and fulfillment and peace squeezed into it. Well, that happiness is really the Greek word Makarios, which is translated in Matthew chapter 5 as blessed. That is what we want. That is why we take the decisions that we take. That is why we do what we do. We eat the chocolate bar because we think it will make us happy. We go to the gym because we think, although it will be painful, if we keep working away, when we get our six-pack and our muscles and we're fit and strong, we will be happy. We apply for a certain job or a promotion or a certain course at university because we think that is the path that will lead to happiness for us. We are all seeking after, striving after happiness. Blaise Pascal was, I think, a mathematician and a physicist, basically an all-round genius. And uh, he said this, he said, all people seek happiness, this is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the very motive of every action of every man. Well, it's maybe a slight overstatement, I'm not sure. But certainly that is what we are looking for. We are looking for true and lasting happiness. And the good news is this, that God loves us. And in his love for us, he offers our longing for True happiness, true joy, true blessedness is what God wants for His children and what Christ wants for His followers, and it is one of the blessings that the Spirit is pleased to bring to the redeemed of God. All three persons in the one true God have been working to open the door which leads to happiness, to blessedness, to joy. Our God is the joyful God. He is the blessed God. Paul speaks of the glorious gospel of the blessed God in 1 Timothy. And he wants us to share in his blessedness, to share in his happiness, to share in his joy. I have come, says Jesus in John 10, 10, that they may have life and have it to the full. He teaches his disciples in John chapter 15, and after his teaching, he says, I have told you this, that my joy might be in you, and that your joy 
may be complete. And then those wonderful words at the end of the parable of the talents, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. We will know blessedness beyond description on that day. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love them. And yet, we have tasted them, we have glimpsed them, and we can know them in Christ. Eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love them. That's 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10 says this, but God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. I've heard a lot of sermons on 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 where I've thought, I don't think this preacher has read the next verse. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love them, but God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. And so in the Spirit, we ought to know something of the happiness of heaven, something of the joy of Jesus now. In the midst of the mess of our world, in the midst of the mess of our own lives, we ought to have tasted something of the reality of the joy of Jesus. Be in no doubt the joyful God wants you to know His joy. The blessed God wants us to know true blessedness in the here and now, but it won't just happen automatically. No, our lives have to be reordered. Things have to be put in their proper place. Then we will know what it is to live in the joy of of Jesus. It all sounds so good, doesn't it? It all sounds so good until we read the Beatitudes and we think, what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor, those who mourn the meek. Really? Happy are the skint, the sad, and the soft. Is that what we are to read into these verses? Is that what we are expected to believe? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It actually gets worse. The word translated poor doesn't mean kind of working class poor. It means utterly destitute, not so much as a copper coin to your name. Happy is the man who is utterly unable to provide for himself. Blessed is the woman who needs charity to survive. Why? Because it is then when your sense of self-sufficiency has been swept aside, when your pride has been smashed into a million pieces, it is then that you will come to God in desperation and in humility. And if you think your way through the Gospels, think of those who came to Jesus 
in desperation and humility. And think of the response of Jesus to those people, those people who were poor in spirit. doesn't matter whether they were from the wrong, uh, inverted commas, the wrong race, the wrong gender, the wrong religious background, living the wrong lifestyle, remembering the wrong past, carrying the baggage of what they had done or what they had seen or where they had been. None of that mattered. When they came to Jesus in desperation, in humility, crying out to Him, only too aware of their own spiritual poverty, He receives them with open arms to the shock and to the horror often of the religious bystanders. Everything could seem so wrong, but when they came to Jesus like that, He loved them, He welcomed them, and He changed their lives. We may make a complete mess of our lives. We may live lives which are grossly offensive to God. We may live even in such a way as that those whom we love leave us. We, we looked, to go back to the minister's conference, we looked at Psalm 27. I won't, I won't quote it, but it speaks of if even those you know, who, who, who love me, if my own father and mother turn away, the Lord will not turn away. We can live our lives in the most awful way imaginable. But if we come to recognize how poor we are spiritually, if we come to recognize that we have nothing to offer, nothing to bring, if we come to recognize that we come to God with empty hands, if we come in desperation and humility and faith, He will receive us with open arms. All we need to do is to come like the tax collector and not the Pharisee. To some who were confident, says Luke, of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It was the tax collector who was poor in spirit. And so it was the tax collector who prayed in humility, looking not to himself for justification, but looking to God for justification. That's true, of course, when we first come to faith. Many will not come because they 
are unwilling to admit that they need help, that they need rescued, that they need saved. The gospel is an offense to the proud, to those who like to think they are self-sufficient. But it's also true when we become Christians and maybe our lives start to become better, neater and tidier. We come to church on a Sunday, we tick the religious boxes, we begin to clean up the mess that our lives have got into. And the danger then, these are all good things, but the danger then is that we begin to look to the good things that we are now doing rather than to the Lord Himself. And we must never trust in the goodness of our works as if we can reach up to God. We will never be able to reach up to God. We must always look to the God who has reached down to us in Christ for forgiveness and for justification. We never outgrow the gospel. Never. Not a great fan of, of um, Christian clothing, I, I confess, but when I used to work in Wesley Wynn many years ago, we used to sell a t-shirt uh, that said, I am the wretch to which the song refers. And I always thought that was, that was good. I am the wretch to which the song refers. We don't need to model the t-shirt, but we do need to model the lifestyle. You know, we sing about uh, amazing grace, wonderful grace, you know, that saved a wretch like me. Well, if we live lives that are proud, if we look down our noses at other people, any other people, then we deny that which we sing when we take our pew on a Sunday. I am the wretch to which the song refers. We ought to model the lifestyle of humility and love. Those who know they are poor will never cease to be amazed by grace, will never cease to be joyful in Jesus. Pride is so um, dangerous and we all have to battle it. You know, some might be prone to this sin, some might be prone to that sin, but we are all prone to the sin of pride. I am no stranger to pride. Just here in the rain on the roof, I was wandering about St. Andrew's uh, earlier last week, unwilling to admit that I didn't know where I was going, and the rain was coming down, and the wind was blowing, and I was arguing with Deborah. I wasn't on the phone to Deborah, but I could hear her voice in my head saying, ask someone directions, Ross. And I'm saying to the voice in my head, no, no, no. I am not a tourist. I am from this country. I've been in St. Andrews many times. I'm sure I can handle it. I'm saying, I, I, I have a bronze orienteering badge from 1992 in the garage. I can show you it when I get home. I'm sure I can handle this. And on I go, you know, getting absolutely soaked, risking my health, risking a cold because I'm too proud to admit that I need help. And I have risked much more in my time. I have risked my life because of pride, nothing more than pride. I've told this story before, so I'll try and tell it quickly, but I was about 17 or 18 in a camp in Greece, and we'd taken the children down to the sea. We were swimming in the ocean, and I'm playing with this wee ball with a boy who must be around about 14, I guess. And I'm unwilling to admit, because of pride, I'm not a very good swimmer. So I'm the big 17-year-old or 18-year-old, and I swim out to the deep part of the ocean, and we're throwing this ball between each other. And he throws it, and the wind takes it, and it goes away behind me, and I turn around and I think, 
I don't know what fancy this, but I'm too proud to admit that I'm not a good swimmer. So I swim out, an initial burst of speed, and then I begin to tire and slow down, and the ball just stays at the same distance. It must be floating at the same speed at which I am swimming, and it's so frustrating. I can almost touch it, almost touch it, and eventually I manage to grab hold of it, and I turn round, and everyone is they're just like me dots on the shore, and I think, I don't think I'm going to make this back. So I throw the ball, and the wind catches it, and it hardly moves, splash my way to get it, get the ball, throw it again as hard as I can, and the wind takes it away over my head and back, and I look around and think, that's it, I'm never going to get that. So I just keep swimming towards the shore, and I can kind of see the boy that I'm playing this game with looking at me like, why, why are you not going for the ball? I'm splashing my way back, and I think, right, surely now I can touch the bottom. So I go down, I go down, and I go down, splash my way back up, and I go as far as I can go again, and I see this wee boy on a pink lilo, and I kind of swim up to quite close to where he is, and I think, he's just chilling out in his pink lilo. Surely now I can touch the bottom. So I go down, and I go down, and I go down, and I genuinely think, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it back up this time. Splash my way to the surface, and by now I realise, you know, this is no time for pride. And eventually, at long last, I admit that I need help. So I turn to this boy. The children were from Iraq and Albania. I can't remember where he was from. Uh, but it makes no difference because I don't speak any Arabic and I don't speak any Albanian. Um, I, I know a few phrases in Greek, but I've not yet learned, help, I'm drowning, give me your pink lilo. So I just shout help, and I think I'm splashing about here, it must be obvious that I need help, and he just smiles and waves at me and kind of paddles past in his lilo, and I'm really struggling now, I kind of try and splash a bit more, but my arms are on fire, and I turn to the 14-year-old boy, and I shout, help, all pride gone, help, I have no strength left whatsoever, and he comes out to me, takes me by his arm, and swims me back to the shore. I mean, it, it, I think it's kind of funny looking back on it now, but I, I seriously risked my life just because I was too proud to admit, firstly, that I'm not a very good swimmer, and secondly, that I needed help. Terrible. Pride is a terribly dangerous thing. And people risk not just their lives, but their souls because they are unwilling to admit their spiritual poverty, unwilling to admit that they need God's help, unwilling to admit that they need rescued, they need saved. May it not be so for any of us. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will be humble enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Here is a great paradox. Happy are the sad. What are we to make of this? The gladness of grief. It's true to say that sometimes in the saddest moments of our life, we experience the sweetness of the Lord's presence and His comfort and His peace in a very special way. That is true. 
And so we could just interpret this at face value, that in our sadness, in our sorrow, in our grief, we know the Lord's comforting presence, and that's a very wonderful thing to experience. Or it could be because suffering and sorrow can be great tutors. We can learn a lot in the school of suffering, can't we? One of the main ways we grow in Christ is through the hardship that we experience. Or it could be that we are called to love others, and to love is to open yourself to sorrow. C.S. Lewis said very famously, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. So it could be just that in our sorrow, we know the Lord's comfort. It could be that in our sorrow, Uh, We grow in grace. It could be a reminder that we are to love and be tender-hearted and that that will involve suffering at times. These are all true. But the Beatitudes all flow into one another. And there's a slight overlap between them all. And so it seems most likely to me and to all of the, the commentators to which I turned for advice and help that Jesus is referring to sorrow over our own sin. So in the first beatitude, we realize our poverty. We see what we cannot do. And in the second beatitude, we realize that we are culpable. We see what we have done. We ought to be cut to the heart by what we have done to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be cut to the heart by our sin. We ought to be cut to the heart like those who heard Peter preach on Pentecost. Do we grieve over our sin? Do we grieve over the rebellion in our hearts? Do we long to take those remnants of the old life, the old person, the sinful nature, do we long to take them and put them to death? In generations past, the church spent a lot of time speaking about things like this, the mortification of sin and these kind of things. We don't speak about it very much now, but it is very important that we grieve over our sin, over the rebellion in our hearts, and we seek to put that sin to death, to rid ourselves of its influence. Paul said, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Do we grieve over that which grieves the Spirit of God in our lives? We should. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 7 in the New Living Translation says this. It says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And lastly, briefly, blessed are the meek. Not the weak, but the meek. To be meek is to have whatever power you have. You might be very strong. You might not. It doesn't matter. To have whatever power you have under control, under authority, we might say. Under what authority? Well, firstly, under the authority of self. 
In Galatians 5, the list of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control is there, isn't it? We ought to be self-controlled. And as Christians, we ought to add that above that, uh, our strength, our power ought to be under the authority of Christ Jesus. To be meek is to have your strength under control. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where someone has wronged you and you have had it in your power to tear them to shreds, to leave them without a leg to stand on. Maybe to humiliate them, maybe just to bring them down a peg or two. And you could justify it because of what they've done to you. You could justify tearing them to shreds. But you decide to be merciful and loving towards them as a follower of Jesus. Well, that is meekness. To be meek is to be self-controlled. To be meek is to choose to use your strength in the service of Jesus. To be meek is to be gentle and to be merciful and to be kind rather than short-tempered and uncontrolled. The Lord Jesus has been gentle and merciful and kind to us, hasn't he? Maybe you've known someone that you can never really relax around because they lash out either with their words or with their fists. You can never really relax in their presence because they are not meek. They are not self-controlled. Jesus was gentle, but he was not meek. He was mighty, but thanks be to God, he was and he is merciful. So we ought to see the progress here. Happy are those who see their spiritual insufficiency. They will look to Jesus. Happy are those who sorrow over their sin. They will repent and follow him. Happy are those who are gentle and merciful with others. They will live in the kindness and the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. May we know that happiness. And may this be a place, may we be a people in which others come to find this happiness in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together to sing our closing hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound 